And I just can't imagine what it's like to not know where you're going to sleep that night and how you're going to stay warm. The city states that they do have designated parks, but those designated parks are unsafe. It's hard out there nowadays. I guess the population has risen and there's not enough uh, housing. Saying, hey, I have the right to adequate housing and there is no other place for me to find that right. Our shelter is full every night and there's a huge demand in the city for emergency housing and for permanent housing and we see that increasing more and more. I look at the growing problem of homelessness and wondering how and why these people ended up on the streets. They were fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers. They were the best man at a wedding or the maid of honor. Yet their journey through life is one of extreme tragedy, loss, uncertainty and insecurity. And homeless people make me sad. And those with visible or verbal mental health issues, they make me anxious. I wish I could tell you otherwise, but it's the truth. I've donated money and time to charities that help the marginalized. And on a personal level, I'll hand homeless people money and a few words of exchange. But I haven't done much more for them. I suppose it's fear of the unknown combined with Hollywood's personification of the homeless as dangerous when deranged. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I have a lot to learn. My guest today is Eric Wiseman, who is a PhD and advocates for people experiencing homelessness and those with severe mental illness and addictions. And Eric knows what it's like to be homeless. Many years ago, that was his existence. He surrendered his home and all that mattered to feed his drug app. And Eric has context. He knows what it's like to be homeless. Many years ago, that was his existence. He surrendered his home and all that mattered to feed his drug habit. Eric Wiseman, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. I appreciate it. I'd like to talk about how at one time you were someone that was living on the streets and the journey that you had to take to go from actually ending up there to what you're doing today. I have no problem sharing about that. I, w- I want to clarify a couple of things, though. I mean, the, um, the common avatar we have of of young people living on the streets wasn't really the bulk of my experience. Um, so let me just backstep a bit if that's okay. So I rough slept a number of times, but um, as someone who was uh, heavily involved in the drug trade and uh, was uh, experienced severe substance use disorder, I identify as an addict, always will. I uh, I was in and out of different types of homelessness for a very long time. Most of us back then, this is 29, almost 30 years ago, didn't recognize the the way I was living as homelessness. But today we understand that there are at least five major types. So I did a lot of couch surfing. I got evicted a lot. I traded drugs and sex for places to stay. Um, sleeping rough is something I was able to avoid because I had currency and I had uh, an economic role in the world that I lived in, the after hours world that I lived in. So yeah, it was horrible and it was tragic. And I didn't have stable housing for at least six years at the end. Well, at the end, I was literally homeless, but for the year before that, I slept on a pool table for nine months in a bar where I sold drugs. In an interview you did with CBC, you talked about part of this escape into drugs began with a dysfunctional family. Early childhood trauma manifested in anxiety and depression. So tell me a little bit about the background that you feel started this sort of journey to, uh, as you called it, the uh, the darker currents of society. Today, we understand that a lot of unresolved early childhood trauma leads to addictions. In fact, Gabor Mate, who's an important psychologist, has said, you know, I mean, he sort of championed that point of view. 
all of my siblings, there's four of us, we were survivors of a very unstable household. We grew up in affluence. I mean, we were not particularly rich, but we lived in a very wealthy neighborhood and we had everything that we ever needed. The descendants of Jewish immigrants who came in the early 1900s and, you know, were beat up and carried coal on their back to make a living and worked their way up and did very well. And, and so my father married, you know, the perfect avatar, this beautiful young woman and, uh, you know, had this beautiful life up at York Mills and Bayview in Toronto. And we had this beautiful home. And on the outside of all those homes, everything looked great. But all my friends in that neighborhood and I shared these incredibly dysfunctional families. That's the truth. And so my father, who uh, my mother ended up leaving, um, she was an artist and had felt trapped by the marriage. And so she left us when we were, I think I was five when she left. But my father was a very creative man and a very giving man. And, um, I hate demonizing him, but he beat the crap out of me a lot. And there's no easy way to say it. Um, there's no reason to be polite about it. And it traumatized me. It, and he did it a lot. It traumatized me so badly that when I was eight, I actually fell in my best friend's pool and had a near death experience. And I, they saved me and I write about it all the time because I kind of, I kind of felt peaceful compared to what I was going back to. I share this with my students in my, uh, sociology classes. Uh, they need to understand that a lot of the problems we have today are based on things we weren't even allowed to talk about back then. So that went undiscussed for 20 years. And I found myself medicated. The first time I found a release that felt similar to the elation I felt in that pool, I, I stuck with it. And that was smoke and hash when I was like 16. Today, we understand these things far, far better. But it wasn't until I went to rehab 15 years later that I went through enough therapy to realize what that how my father's treatment of me had damaged me. And it was, you know, my, my sister asked me to watch the film Goodwill Hunting because she said he, the, the character reminded uh, her of me. And I watched it and I, I, I felt a, a direct connection. For me, I understand, especially for the work that I've been doing for the last almost 30 years with individuals who are experiencing homelessness and especially addictions, I understand that almost every single one of us, and I would say statistically, every one of us has a trauma of some kind that hasn't been resolved and might not be resolved. You know, you started smoking hash to sort of dull the pain a little bit, but when did drugs start controlling your life? I did really well at university. <laughs> it's funny. I was one of those kids growing up. I was, I, my father smoked, so I wouldn't smoke. And then, um, and I do, I share this with my students. I do a class on cannabis use in Canada and we talk about harm reduction a lot. And so I shared, uh, I try to explain from an ethnographic, um, position, understanding, like from lived experience. I'm under, I'm known as a lived experience scholar. So I try to explain to my students how I started associating so-called deviant and um, illicit behaviors with pleasure. And the first was a cigarette I shared with a girl I wanted to kiss when I was like 15. And, you know, from that moment on, I realized if you do bad things, you get good, you know, these gratifying rewards. And then about a year later, um, I was getting high and I had sex for the first time. And I'm, you start making these positive associations between, um, you know, the, at that point it wasn't harmful, but you start realizing that, um, uh, you can do things that are considered subcultural and find meaning in these places. That's far more satisfa uh, satisfying than it is in conventional spaces. Did you ever wake up one day and sort of say, I'm starting to lose control of this and it's starting to take control of me? Or did it, it happen so slowly that it was the frog in the, uh, the water? That was when I was, sorry, that was when I was 16. And by the time I went to university, I was like working. I had an art gallery. I was making money as an artist. I was getting really good marks, got into grad school. Um, you know, and I was doing cocaine every day and smoking every day and drinking every day, but nobody thought I had a problem because I was doing so well. I didn't think I had a problem. And on my mother's side of the family are all these artists and writers who did that kind of stuff all the time. So they didn't think I had a problem. And then one morning in 1987, I woke up and went, 
I can't get out of bed unless I get high, right? And um, and I couldn't handle going to school anymore. And I uh, dropped out of my PhD after my coursework was done, my first PhD, and went into opened up a gallery, you know, and and lived entirely on in the dark. Like I was, I became a nocturnal rather than a diurnal creature. You know, I was like, all I did was party and hang out. And I was, I met all kinds of people. And for the next almost decade, all I did was I did cocaine every day to the point where I dissolved my septum. I have no septum in my face. Um, I ended up weighing 128 pounds. I was on welfare. I burned all my friends, burned my family. And that happened in about five years. And so I went from being an incredibly gifted place to an absolute nadir of despair. That's the truth. And it was because, in my case, because of the drug. And how much of what you were doing, do you think, was trying to identify with your mom as well? I mean, you keep bringing back, you know, as an artist, my mom was an artist, this is what they did. Was it just part of that sense I belonged in that community or it was, this was just a, a door that opened up as you were trying to find a place to be? It's funny you say that because I uh, there's this guy named Howard Becker who wrote about becoming a marijuana user in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties and it was all about yeah you find a, a you find a community where they embrace um, the, the kinds of sensations and gratification and um, creativity and it's uh, you find a, a stronger sense of connection and that's a, a reason why some people end up doing uh, the uh, the things that are current in those groups like some people drink in drinking groups some people smoke dope uh, because that's what the gang does and you feel like you belong to the gang either for that reason like it might be smoking dope or partying might be part of it but also there's this Social connection that you, that you find that you can make in some places. And a lot of the times you're meeting people in these places that have shared a similar undisclosed experience with you. So yeah, I mean, but also it, my mother's friends are like very serious Canadian artists and writers and it helped me with my own art and with my writing. And it was so exciting. I mean, it's just so, so many things, so many great opportunities came my way. I mean, literally I was in my PhD. I was not enjoying myself. And a friend of the family said, you're not enjoying, this is what he said. You're not enjoying yourself. Let me fund you in a gallery for four years. We were painting clothing. And I, I mean, how do you say no to that when you're, when you're not used to, um, when you're used to taking gratifying, easy come experience? I mean, that was as easy as it comes. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Come home, Hammett, looking to wail on somebody. So I'd provoke him so he wouldn't go after my mother and little brother. Hey, Will. This is not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> it's not your fault. My guest today is Eric Wiseman, a recovering addict who now spends his life raising awareness and offering solutions for people experiencing homelessness, people that are mentally ill, or dealing with addictions. So you get to the point in sort of five years in this spiral, you can't get out of bed without doing drugs and stuff. Was that a point where you started looking, saying, I need rehab? Or did you think that you can manage this on your own? Oh, I totally resisted the idea of rehab. Uh, I knew some people who had been in rehab and I would hang. I ended up running, not running, operating bars for people because I was selling so much dope and they would invite me to when they open new bars to sort of host. And then all my people would come and it would populate the bar. And every once in a while, there'd be people who were sober, but still went to bars to hang out, play pool. There was a couple of brothers who'd been in AA for a long, long time, and they were always wanting to drag me to a meeting, and I completely resisted it. And then um, there was a murder of a young woman that I knew on uh, downtown, and I knew the guy that ended up being arrested for um, killing her. And I wrote about it a bit. I wrote about that time period. I was writing, I was doing some screenwriting, not 
for any particular purpose, but um, turned out that it was this guy. He'd been in my house. He'd been in my family's house for dinner, and um, and it freaked me out. I just I realized like what little what little was left of my uh, my connection to reality. He said, "Oh my God, I'm in the wrong place. Like, how did I get here? Like, literally, like the Talking Head song. How did I get here?" I was writing about it, and it, it took me into this very dark experience. And I was writing about it with a, um, a Canadian filmmaker. We thought we might explore the possibilities of telling the story. And um, as that happened, I, uh, you know, I basically was about to be evicted from a, a welfare paid for studio that I had. I owed so many drug dealers money. It was crazy. I was one. Now I owe them all this money. I was drinking about 40 to 60 ounces of liquor a day. And that's where I was getting all my calories. I weighed 100, like I said, 128 pounds. I was yellow, done. I was done. And I had no spiritual energy left. And I, this is not to sound artistic. I'm being honest. I had, n I was at that place where they a bottom you can't really recover from. And I was, I left my doors open to the studio, hoping that these dealers would come and put me down. That's the truth. And I heard footsteps one day and I turned to the footsteps and I opened my eyes and it was actually my sister. And she'd been looking for me for about four months. She leaned over me and she was bawling her eyes out. And she said to me, and I was, all I owned was a futon that I found on the street. And I was lying on this futon and I looked up, it was February, bright, bright light coming through the window and her tear fell on my cheek. And she said, you need help. I don't, I'd always said no. A hundred times I'd said no. And I, by that time I said, you're right. So she got me to a doctor. She was in the film business. She got me to her doctor who was worked with a lot of film people. And so he had some specialization in addictions. That's what started me on the road to recovery. You know, it's interesting that, you know, first in the swimming pool and then leaving your door open, hoping that a dealer is going to put you down. And each time you're, you're rescued. I have to believe part of your memoir is why I am here because it's uh, it's certainly that part of your life you probably would would have been just as happy not to be there. So I, you know, it's funny. I uh, people say, "Do I have regrets?" I go, "Well, there are a lot of things that I had to make amends for when I learned how to when I got into recovery." But there are some things that you can make amends for that people say, "Oh, don't worry about it." And then there are things you can't make amends for, and there are still a few things that I did that I regret doing, but I know why I went through that experience. Otherwise I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this conversation and I wouldn't be doing the work that I did. and wouldn't have got a chance to go back and finish my PhD. The road back, which is I'm quite fascinated with is that, that you decide to go back to something you didn't enjoy before the PhD process. And your thesis is really a thesis about you, isn't it? Well, so, you know, in sociology and anthropology, we like to call it autoethnographic because it's us looking at our own worlds through our own lenses and the truth is that, um, yeah, I mean, I did the work I did because when I got out of rehab in 96, so I, my dry date is January 1st, 1996. I got out of rehab in July and I came to Toronto and there were so many people on the streets of Toronto that it, it blew my mind. I'd never seen that in, in just a year that had the numbers were outrageous. And I started talking to people. I don't preach recovery when I do this work, but I was meeting so many interesting people. And I'd started writing about housing and homeless and having a home and the Canadian identity and stability and healthcare. You know, when I was in rehab, it's the only way I could really get through it. I, and when I got to Toronto, I was just talking to people and I kept writing and I started filming interviews with people. And I ended up making a documentary about Tent City in Toronto, which some people might remember. And I stayed with that for about 10 years because I became really good friends with people down there and they were evicted and then they were given housing. And it was a total parallel to the experience that I was going through. So I realized about halfway through that film, which you can see on my, on my YouTube channel, if you want, I, I realized that I was really 
but talking to them, I was talking to myself. I was finishing the conversation I started in rehab. I'm still working on it. I tried to get back into university, uh, go back to university because the one thing that I wanted that was part of my identity that I felt that I needed to just intrinsically for its own value to, to, I've always wanted to be an academic. It's always been in my blood. I wanted to go back and do a PhD. But for four years, I applied to a number of different universities and they all rejected me because they couldn't make sense of my life. And then Concordia saw the film. My film ended up being featured at the ROM as part of an exhibition on homelessness. And they heard about it and they said, you should apply to our individualized programs. So I did. And they said, you know what? You're exactly the unusual story we're looking for. So I, I got a chance to, um, to go do my PhD there. And they supported my research looking at tiny homes and tiny home encampments all in different places in the U.S. And that's the work that I started off doing, uh, back in 96. Um, and it's the work I still, I still advocate for tiny homes and alternative spaces. But yeah, I had a really great opportunity and living in Dignity Village in Portland, Oregon which was the first legalized uh, tiny home community in, in American history, was a real eye-opener. So I wrote a couple of books about that, and I did my PhD, and PhD did very well. Uh, I hadn't really thought that I was going to stay as an academic, but because the work did so well, I, I was able to actually not just get my PhD, but pursue a career as an academic again. And that's where I'm at now. So many people I've had on this show that decide that their life is calling is based on the pain they had in their childhood, or your case, on, on the street. Your documentaries are fantastic. The sense of how you capture people' dignity, when I would say the vast majority of people walk by and say that person has no dignity, I think is your gift. Hmm. What's the end game for you? If people are to look at your world, your life, what you're doing in university, what you've done with your documentary, what are you hoping your art is going to do in terms of moving society? Interesting that you say that. I'm actually, uh, I do a lot of public speaking. And one of the things that I do is, in, some people read it as irreverence. It's not, it's really the fact that I feel like I did damage, not just to my, well, just so you know, I, I have to clear this, clarify this. The first thing that when I left rehab, the first, the person who picked me up was my dad, the person who was most supportive of me. Oh, they were, everybody was supportive of me. I shouldn't say most, but he came out and visited me and, um, he picked me up and we went to, we went to Panzer's restaurant, which is our family, traditional family restaurant. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, Sid? Um, you really, can I, I don't want to swear, but you really effed me up. And, uh, and I don't, I, we have to deal with that. And he said, well, you did, you were, you weren't great to me either. And I went, you know what? You're right. And we made our peace right there that day. And we were for the next 20 years or whatever, however long it was. Like best buddies again, you know, when he died and he was a sick guy, you know, he would call me up to take him to emergency when he was having a heart, a heart uh, situation and stuff. So we became, well, we were, if to recover, that was more to me, even more uh, amazing than recovering my own pathway, but it was essential to recovering my pathway. So where do I, where am I going with my, my art, my work? And why do I do what I do? Because I think there's a lot of pain out there, a lot of unresolved issues. I think that rest that we can restore. I'm a big in my anti-criminology courses. I teach a lot about restorative justice. I I believe that we need to rethink deserving and undeserving character. I think that if if we provide people with the tools and supports that everybody who um, and even those who don't know that they need a, a not th that they're worthy of redemption, not that they need to redeem themselves. I'm not being judgmental, but people who want a reinvention are worthy of it. And we make people feel so unworthy. And, and not only that, we, we um, infantilize people for their, for their problems rather than loving them for their problems. I'm lucky. And I share this all the time. I do a lot of work on harm reduction right now. We have a harm reduction symposium out here. I'm writing my memoirs, not written. It's written to share the story so people can understand how it takes 
a great constellation of events and people to make recovery possible and that there are different kinds of recovery. So my, my, my work at the end of the day is about repairing some of the damage of the past that I couldn't repair. So I, I speak all the time about, um, uh, housing, homelessness, mental health, addictions. I share my story as often as possible because every once in a while, somebody will call me up or email me and say, I heard your story. Can you help me? Or can you give me some advice? I, I feel like if there, there were things that I couldn't make direct amends for, and I need to constantly be uh, putting the message out there. And I'll be honest with you, lately, it's been quite frustrating because I see so much work being, so much talk about housing, so much talk about homelessness. The problems are getting worse and worse. And a lot of people just started looking at this issue for the last 15 years. I've been you know, in it and then looking at it for like 30 years, and it's exhausting. It's It's traumatizing to see the amount of pain out there. So I'm hoping that my work will help people find positive stories, a positive, reinforce their own interest in, um, in telling their story and overcoming the negative aspects of it. When we return, Eric Wisen makes a compelling argument on what society needs to do to deal with this growing crisis of people living on the streets. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, and a big thank you to RBC for sponsoring Chatter That Matters. Speaking of matters, I have a question for you. You check in on your family, your health, even your car. When was the last time you did a check-in on your finances? Well, RBC Check-In is a virtual experience with no obligation. I got answers to all of my money questions, big and small, and I now have a plan for my future. Book a check-in at rbc.com slash check-in. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Eric Weissen is my guest. He's a former addict, couch surfer, lived on a pool table for seven months. Drugs take over his life, but he finds his way back because of the love of his sister, earns his PhD, and now spends his time using his context and his artistic talents to raise awareness and advocate for the people that are marginalized and in need. If they were to give you the game ball and say, you know, Eric, we, we've talked about this. This has been so much rhetoric going on for years. Let's make this reality. What would you do to put a dent into this problem? Because it is a growing problem in society. Well, so I do a great deal of work looking at prevention right now. In fact, I'm funded by uh, we're doing research on post-secondary student homelessness right now across Canada, which is about 110,000 students a day are experiencing some form of homelessness. And so uh, we started doing this research six years ago. And in the last decade, there's been a lot of focus rather than on intervention on prevention. So if you want to make a dent, there's like three levels. One is if there's a policy level, uh, then there's the funding level, and then there's the support level. So the policies we have, we have policies, or apparently we have a housing strategy and we have all these plans, but they're totally ineffectual. Um, I mean, they have, they make little dents here and there. I don't want to make a dent. The truth is we have to give people housing. You can't have health care. You can't have harm reduction unless people have stable housing. That's the policy, and you got to put money behind the policy. We could build housing. We don't need to study how to build housing. We, believe me, I'm actually in the middle of doing a film right now in New Brunswick on uh, place attachment and the different kinds of housing that people have and how they make them their home. I mean, we know how to build just about every kind of housing you can imagine. So what we need is to uh, use researchers like some of the folks I work with who are looking at which housing is appropriate for which group and in which place, you know. So there's there's putting the housing piece and the policy piece together with funding. doesn't seem to be any honest willingness to do that, especially with the real estate market and the fact that it's like the only commodity that we're really capitalizing on in our country anymore. So this is a problem. 
Like to me, it's like we know how to build a housing. Like I, I said it on the radio a couple of years ago and I got yelled at for doing it. But I said, build the effing housing. They asked me what the solution was. Same question. I said, build the housing. Low barrier, housing first with supports and other and other supportive housing. So that's one piece. The other piece is that the community has to recognize that it, we can't be pursuing our material interests. And some, some of them are just bizarre without it being at the expense of some people. There's no way that a person who's struggling the way I was struggling and some of the, the folks who are St. John has a lot of obvious, very quite visible problems with addictions and homelessness. These folks need community buy-in and everybody here is quite nice and they want to help and they donate. And I think if we looked at it this way, if we looked at everybody as deserving, uh, that would be really important to helping alleviate the, the pain. The other problem is that people who are using have experienced, even though we try to empathize, I can empathize because I was there. But there are even people I meet who I and I have a hard time with their stories because they were even darker than my I mean, much darker than my own. And so the idea that we should have conventional expectations for people who have experienced that kind of damaging. You met some of them in the films, right? I mean, they've gone through things that are just I mean, it breaks my heart to think about it. So the community really had to say the community is going to buy in. They have to the community has to understand what buying in really means. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy to help people and to support them because the last piece, which is to give people the supports they need for to maintain their housing and things like that, that means also talking to individuals and helping individuals learn the skills to stay housed. I was in rehab for a total almost 11 months that year. And the last four months I had to learn just to be on my own. They made me stay at the rehab. I mean, I could have left, but they said, if you leave, it's, you're not going to, you'll be, you're homeless. You have nowhere to go. If you're going to be homed, you need to stay here to learn how to be home and to keep home. And I did, I stayed for four months. We need a psychic shift collectively. We need to actually, when we say we care, we have to say we care instead of we tolerate. When we say, when we talk about people, we have to look at everybody as deserving. And if people are, this is a major problem that we have. People, people in Canada have, they, they, we use this word tolerant. And then what we're really saying is we tolerate people we don't think are actually deserving. So I think we need to really get together and say, we can't have a healthy community. We can't have a healthy society unless everybody has housing and the supports that they need. And I'll tell you something, if we don't do it soon, it's going to be a runaway train. And that's what I wanted to go to because that famous story, the little Dutch boy that tries to hold back the dam with a finger and then more water pulls out with the opiate crisis, uh, inflation, state of our economy, the amount of people that need the help that you're talking about could grow exponentially and exponentially. It is growing actually exponentially. Sorry to interrupt. And for people who don't study math, that's almost an insurmountable problem. I actually had a a really great scholar. She's doing her PhD at West. Her name is Nancy Henderson. Um, She's a person with lived experience that I met with Making the Shift who funded my research. And she's also a Making the Shift scholar. And her work is on opioid agonist therapies. And she did a study in Peterborough where they looked at safer supply. And it was such a health Canada financed it. And it was such a such a great study and revealed the um, the positive benefits of helping people with different types of therapies and the role that safer supply can play that they ended up extending the uh, the grant. I think it was turned into a million dollar grant. And now it's all over Canada. And she's now doing her PhD in British Columbia because British Columbia, then you talk about exponential pro- uh, growth. We're talking about, we're talking about death rates that are 
hundreds of percent greater than the rest of the country um, in British Columbia. So they were able to get a, a dispensation, an exclusion to legalize certain illicit drugs to see what the impact of that's going to look like. So this is like the policy piece. We're starting to change policies to recognize the empirical truth that's out there, that people are dying from unsafe drug supplies and that people do drugs. I was having this lecture in my class a couple of weeks ago where I was trying to explain that bars are managed consumption sites. We sell tobacco, we consume sugar, nicotine and caffeine, and the health costs associated with those four substances are almost incalculable. The problem is that the drugs that are out there on the street now are so dangerous that they're kill they kill people immediately. So we don't have the, the leisure of taking five or 10 years to understand. We have to this is an emergency. It's been an emergency for a while. We declared it an emergency. And so we need to take bold steps in this move in British Columbia to decriminalize is, you know, it has its strengths and weaknesses. But if we don't do something, it's, it's going to, well, it is, it's spreading into all kinds of groups that, and it's unintentional. Many of these overdoses we've had, I think it's, I'm trying to remember what the number is, but in British Columbia alone in Alberta, between the two of them, it's something like 7,000 deaths in four years. Um, in fact, the opioid crisis has started to lead to a decline in our in our population growth, started to lead to a decline um, in our life expectancy for certain age groups. It's that significant. It may not seem like a big deal to other people, but I'll tell you this. Uh, this is something else I'd like to suggest that, you know, in 19 in the 1980s, we all heard about HIV AIDS. But for those of us, I mean, I had lots of gay friends and they started to die. And I recognized pretty quickly how horrendous it was. But there wasn't much interest in helping people until it started spreading to the mainstream population, until it crossed that boundary. And now opioids have always been out there. Heroin's always been out there. And the war on drugs has always attacked people of lower income, statistically speaking, people of color and people who had severe substance use disorders. But now that's killing people that aren't classically associated with those uh, with these groups. That's increased people's awareness and concern about the actual reach of the epidemic. And this is not just Canada. This is all over the world. Do you think that within our democracy that politicians that get elected by handing out, I don't want to say bribing for ballots, but handing out goodies for the voters are ever going to put some of the things you talk about on their agenda because it's not vote worthy. It's not something that my constituents are going to be interested in. They want free dental. They want free this and that. I really believe that because the like fentanyl and uh, Trank, which is out there now, uh, because these drugs are out there and they're not regulated, people from those uh, political classes, let's say, the especially elite classes, are dying from it. And they are going to get concerned about it and they are starting to get concerned about it. And so there was this expression in the 1950s when they were trying to, after the war, they were trying to change the world. And they said, transform people's needs and wants and the rest will follow. Same is true. The same is true with um, our awareness around drugs. Now, a lot of it's regional. A lot in urban centers, you find far more support for progressive, uh, the progressive treatment of addictions. But our awareness of the, the breadth of this problem is, is very high. We have people know there are people who, say, well, if a person's going to do that, it's their choice. And so what what needs to change is the discourse or the narratives we tell ourselves about people who use. Like, I'm an addict. I will always be an addict. I don't use. For me, uh, managed consumption wouldn't have been an opportunity, wouldn't have been a choice. I was just too close to the end. But there, instead of uh, saying we don't want people using, we're now, I think we're looking, we're living in a time where we're realizing that we're human beings. We all use something. We all do. 
We all use a substance and some of it's regulated like sugar. I mean, how many deaths are related to sugar? So I think if we're able over the next several years, and I think that's the direction we're going in to explain to people that, you know, people are trying things or people are getting into, people are using things today commonly that were one time considered illegal. If we can change tolerance to embracing and caring for other people, truly caring for other people, democracy will prevail. I think that convincing people that legalization or decriminalization or that harm reduction is a sensible way to help people is a difficult narrative to, to force on some people. Even though they, they're loving people, they want to care about other people, they just don't agree with the method. So one of the things that we do, especially with tiny homes and with safe harm reductions, we, for the people who are opposed to what we're suggesting, we show them the, the dollars, we show them the cost. It is far less expensive to house somebody and provide them with support than to leave somebody in their addictions on the streets. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. And coming up, you're going to hear an idea that I think has incredible traction and appeals to my three magic words. Head, I get the idea. Heart, I want to be part of it. And hands, we find a way to make it happen. Stick around. Mentally and physically, I'm not able to work because of all the abuse and stuff that I had to put up with when I was growing up on the street and stuff. But I am responsible now for what's going on. And I'm happy that I have housing because if it wasn't for this housing, I don't know where I'd be right now. While there are no guarantees that all those with homes will be happy, there is an absolute guarantee that all those without homes will struggle. My guest today is Eric Wiseman, who escaped a life on the streets to earning his PhD and teaching the next generation strategies on what we can do as a society to help people that are addicted, or severely mentally ill, and homeless. I've watched the conversations you've had with so many of these people that are living on the streets or have found a way to create their own shelter. Do they want to be put in a place nobody wanted to be? And do they want, it's almost, I think of the indigenous and reservations from years ago. Are they comfortable knowing that the move for society might be, we're willing to surrender some land, we're willing to support this movement, but we just don't want to see it in our city. NIMBY culture. Sort NIMBYism. Of yeah. yeah. Not in my backyard. Well, it's true, right? So that exists in a lot of places. Uh, although I, I, I won't use our Oregon as an example because Oregon is one of these places, especially Portland and Eugene, where they have tons of tiny homes now, like tons of them. I think seven or eight in Oregon. In fact, there was a, an emergency rest area in Portland called Right to Dream 2, which I've written about extensively. Amazing place. It's a tent camp. So when they call places tent cities that aren't tent cities, uh, tent city in Toronto was not tents. It was shacks that they built out of scrap. Uh, Dignity Village was shacks, not tents. But this was actually an emergency rest area, like a mash unit. And um, they were supposed to be there for three months. They were there for five years, saved about 100,000 lives. And I'm not exaggerating. Sorry, serviced 100,000 people and saved lives. And um, they were given tiny homes by the city as a, a compromise 20 years after Dignity Village. So they were, it's still downtown. They weren't forced to live outside of the city. The folks at Dignity Village were supposed to be there like on two year, two year terms. There are people who've been living there for 15 years. They love being in the village. They went there on the promise that the village would be built on an arable piece of land. And it wasn't. So today, the, you know, a lot of people have learned from these earlier experiments. And now the idea of building a tiny home community without services is trying to, you know, make them fail. Most of the tiny home 
that are being built now are built with community built into them, designed into them, and accessible to services. There's one here in uh, Fredericton, which is amazing. It's called 12 Neighbors. They've put 50 houses up in the last 18 months. They have a community center. It's a, people have a, they're beautiful tiny homes. They're not big, but beautiful. You should really look them up. And uh, Marcel Lebrun, who put it together, he's an entrepreneur. You see, this is what I say, what I'm saying about community. He's a, a successful entrepreneur who wanted to give back. And so he invested a, quite a bit of money. The government put in a bunch, bunch of money and they've managed to build 50 little houses in less than a year and a half. And there'll be another 50 by the end of, I guess, next year. And they're well-serviced and it's a place where the support workers can come see them. It's next to a Walmart. I mean, it does not have to be the way it was for Dignity Village and other political claims. They've crossed into the housing paradigm. So they're no longer political claims. They're social justice claims. Do you think that might be the impetus for change is the entrepreneurs, the ESG, the organizations adopting ESG, where they start saying, we can get behind this rather than waiting on the government, even waiting on the community. We can take our own resources and start creating these things, uh, you know, tactical idea, have our, get our employees to donate. So instead of, you know, build 10 houses, then maybe build 50 and maybe build 200. Is that a path forward? That's what I mean by community support. It's a constellation of all kinds of different grassroots, nonprofits, citizens. There was a place in Austin, Texas that went up it's called Community First Village. And it was like at the time, this was back in 2014, it was like the most successful example I had seen in the evolution of these supportive communities. And what they did was they told their community what they needed. Their supporters actually paid for each unit. All these different uh, corporations, nonprofits, community members, members of their parishes, putting it together to build this amazing subdivision. Same with 12 Neighbors. They've gotten support. A lot of their supporters are buying things for the village. We're, we're working, uh, there's a, uh, they just built a supportive housing uh, called Rose House here in St. John. These are women who are coming out of abusive relationships, who have addiction, some of them. And I do some work with them. And one of the amazing things is how much of the community has come together to support them. Community wants to get involved in these positive narratives. We're so sick. We're so burnt out. We're so coveted out. We're so traumatized by other people's trauma. So people actually want to help. And I think community buy-in is going to be the thing that A, puts pressure on the policy piece and B, provides funding so we can build these things. And then lastly, provides ongoing support because it feels good to support people and see positive changes. So, you know, you talked about when your dad died, you were best buddies again and you forgave him and there's some apologies that had to come from you as well. How's your relationship with your mom? My mom passed away. How old were you when your mom passed away? Oh, that was like six years ago. Actually, it wasn't that long ago. She and I were, yeah, it's weird. I had a strange relationship with my family. My mom, my mom, um, I saw as a kid on like Sundays and Tuesdays and I don't know. I was a kid, didn't really understand what was going on. But by the time I was 19, 18, 19, I was at university and I was partying a lot. And I would, you know, they're, they're um, without dropping names, they were, they were in the higher levels of Canadian culture. So the parties and people around them were quite exciting. And I don't know. We were just like, it's, she was my mom, but she also left when I was a kid. And it's like with my dad. So in order to get over that, I had to establish a new context for our relationship. So she was really, I worship my mom. I love my mom. And we had a very close relationship. And her partner, who's a fairly well-known writer and publisher and person, uh, he and I developed a very close relationship, even though I kind of hated him. And we still have that very close, but I don't know, standoffish relationship. But when my mom died, I, I moved back to Toronto and I lived, I moved into a small apartment very close to her house because she, she went through a kind of brutal form of cancer. And I caregave for her with my, uh, my other sibling, Andrea, and other members of my family. 
it was um, as close as two human beings could be to be that close to someone in their worst moments of their life. Did she know you were getting beaten by her ex? Did she? Not till later. Not till later. They didn't know. No, they didn't know. And in fact, one of the things that bothered me, I'll be honest with you, is that I had made peace with my father. And so in the 10 years following my my treatment, because when I was in treatment, uh, the therapists all spoke to my family and told them everything they had heard. And I guess that's when my family learned about, like my siblings knew about it. But my mother either, I'm sure she knew about it, but I think she just figured it was normal discipline. I don't think anybody understood just how severe it was. Their siblings. I mean, the sister that saved you. Peter's going to join me on the show. I mean, you must have caused them a lot of pain. How's your relationship with them now? We survived in our own ways together. I think my my siblings got disciplined, but I think sometimes inserted, especially for my little brother, I know I did this, that I got between him and my father sometimes, although not all the time. Like you get to a point where it doesn't even hurt anymore. It's just mentally damaging. Physically, you don't feel a thing. In fact, you go to this place. That's what getting high was. It was going to that place. Not the swimming pool place. It was going to this numbness place. My siblings, when I got older, seeing me d- decay like that, I mean, uh, they were in tears. And it's funny that you say that because I got my full-time job, my tenure track job about three years ago. At, and we were all like, I worked really hard to get here. And my family's really supported me. And um, when I was told that I got the position, I didn't really believe it because I just, you know, I... I just didn't think that it was possible. So I called my sisters up and I said, I'm going to make you cry, but for good reasons now. <laughs> it's so funny. And I told them, I, you know, it's not for the same old reason. And they were like literally dropping the phone and crying because, yeah, we, they, not only did we survive the chaos of my childhood, our childhood, um, and learning how to worry. We're such worriers because how can you not worry when the people who are supposed to look after you fail you? They all tried to support me in their own ways, but to watch somebody with such potential decay, I mean, I know it now because as as a sober person, I've worked with a lot of people who I've watched the glow go out of their eyes, you know, and then then when they get it back, it's an amazing experience. So my success, whatever it might look like, um, is their success. All of them helped me in their in immense ways. So I always end my show with my three takeaways. And the first one, I think, is just this incredible love and hate relationship you have with the people you should love the most. It's really interesting, the tension, the tragedies, the letdowns, the trauma that was caused. But at the end of it, there's a love affair. And I think that's just beautiful. Second thing is just how much art has played in your life. It financing your drug habits, socializing with an elite art group, even today with your film and documentaries and your ability to tell stories. And I think like any great songwriter, because you're telling stories with context. And the third one is just your how you're advocating for society to open their eyes if they have to open their eyes to the financial realities. But more importantly, if they open their hearts to realizing that with the right circumstances, with the right strategies, the right experimentation, we can reduce the amount of people committing suicide. We can get people that think their life's going to be for the rest of their life on the street into even tiny homes and, and into societies. There's no wonder you got tenure. You must be one of the most extraordinary professors for a student to hear from because of the uh, many lessons you've learned through your life. I have to clarify, I haven't got tenure yet. I, uh, well, hopefully after this podcast, they'll realize they've got something. <laughs> I think people need when they're, I ask my students to do this, and especially in our criminology class when we're talking about punishment, I ask them to check their gut. And I go, check your fears. Let's talk, we're going to talk about this sociologically. So the, let's let's talk about what you're feeling 
internally, and then let's then we'll look at it sociologically. So let's look at the same issues that we've been talking about. I ask that people consider when they're opposed to something that they might be stuck in resentment. Resentment is what kills us all. It doesn't matter if you're an addict recovering or if you're just a normal person. If you resent something or if you're fearful and you're making decisions about other people's, about laws or about policies or about choices that other people make based on your own fear and resentment, I ask people to check that. And if they do, I think they'll find that they're much more open-minded than they might, they might have realized. I was sharing this episode with my wife and she and I started talking about what could we do to solve hopelessness? Here's a couple of thought starters. We're going to see some shopping centers that are going to close down. We know that there's manufacturing buildings that are empty right now. What if we created a circular culture and economy? Let's say we take over a shopping center. The department store becomes a second harvest where we're repurposing food that would normally go to a landfill. We have a bunch of other different shops and trades, places that you can learn to do skills like drywalling. It's a campus, and it is a working business, and it is also a place where we house the homeless, where they have heat and air conditioning, and there's bathrooms. The food court can be taken over to cook their meals, and they learn, and they become part of society again. And I just want you to imagine a father or mother who's been living on the street, hasn't chatted with their kids in years, and they invite them over to see their little home and the business that they're doing. Wouldn't that be a great thing for society to do? And here's another idea. What if we crowdsourced it? What if we went and talked to people that have the ability to fund this kind of venture and we all come together and make it work? And even if we take 50 people and have them go from being homelessness to having a home, that's something special. And I bet you within those 50, there are many more Eric Wiseman's. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.